Hi, ho, ho. It's me, Boris Karlov, back at us again with a new episode of the Boy Time Podcast. And as always, I'm joined by Babby and Paul. Uh, oh, that was an interesting not sound. good. Uh, I don't know why that intro was like a slog to get through this time. Usually I'm bouncy on top of it, but it's a lot of words to get through. I think I just had a realization there at the beginning of Uh-oh. the podcast. That's okay. Uh, welcome. It's a it's officially spooky month. It's October, Ooh. first episode of October. Um, and uh, we're going to be doing a little bit, something a little different. Or I am going to be doing something. I, say, um, I was not aware of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to be doing something a little different uh, for October. Uh, going to do a horror marathon. Uh, in celebration of, of Halloween and, all, you know, just the lead up to it, I suppose. And so uh, I figured, you know, usually, you know, we usually take this week by week. Um, you know, I I just watch whatever I want to and then I talk about it. But I think sometimes that uh, limits how I can talk about it because uh, I'm worried about spoiling things. Well, this time... I'm going to announce the schedule for October ahead of time, so Ooh. then people who are listening can uh, watch along, and so I don't have to be as worried about giving things away, because I'm giving you a spoiler warning weeks in advance. Uh, and in fact, next week, we are going to be taking off, because I'm going to be in Albuquerque, um, so we'll not be able to record so I'll, oh yeah you, you can I, theoretically i <laughs> could but i, <laughs> I don't got it <laughs> hey, you know if you guys want to record that would be fine eh. you know i leave the podcast in your trustworthy hands but i have a feeling that's not going to happen you heard that guys oh, he's, he's done. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm giving you two weeks uh heads up in advance so here's here's what we're going to be watching uh, it's going to be five weeks of scheduled programming, which does mean that technically it will bleed into November because I'm taking a week off, but that's that's what we're dealing with. Um, so week one, what we're going to be talking about this week, I am not going to give the two weeks heads up because these movies are almost, well, almost and one is over 100 years old. So yeah, you can still spoil it, you know. Theoretically, I could, but these movies are so well known that uh, I feel like everybody knows everything about it, even if you haven't seen them. So this week we're going to be talking about uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, nineteen twenty, uh, and then two films from nineteen thirty-one, Dracula and Frankenstein. So got some really early horror movies. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is regarded by some to be the first horror movie. So we'll be talking about that this week. That's that's what's going on. But then in two weeks, week two, um, we are going to be going into the Hayes Code era. Uh, we'll be talking about the Hayes Code and what that is. Um, basically it was a series of regulations by the big studio system to kind of, uh, regulate and censor art. Um, these were in place, but 
uh, in between the times of 1934 and they were officially repealed in 1968. So for over 30 years, and this was not put in place by like lawmakers or anything. This was like self-inflicted censorship uh, on big studios. Um, I mean, this was during kind of the Red Scare McCarthy era. Uh, Did not want to be too risque or anything. You know, everything had to be puritanical values and such. So we are going to be looking at some horror movies made during this era. Uh, starting with The Wolfman, 1941, I Walked with a Zombie in 1943, and The Curse of Frankenstein from 1957. So that's going to be on the tail end of it. Um, By that point, the code was less enforced than it was in the beginning, but we'll get a nice little... uh, I guess we'll be able to see that, hopefully, with like the 15-year difference there. Uh, week three, we're going to go into the slasher craze of the eighties, uh, starting with Friday, the 13th, 1980 nightmare on Elm street, 1984 and Friday, the 13th for the final chapter, which, uh, was not all, <laughs> it's the best one, but it is, uh, it's funny cause it is not only the, it's not <laughs> the last one. Uh, because they made 10 movies and this is the fourth one. It's called the final chapter. Uh, it's also not the only movie in the Friday, the 13th franchise to be called the final one and not be the final one. I think like the eighth or the ninth one is called like the final Friday or something. And then they made a couple after that. So it's all a big lie. Um, but I do want to bring something up because, we're doing two Friday the 13th movies, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I think this uh, people might be confused as to why that is and why I'm not watching something like Halloween or something, which kind of kicked the whole craze off. Uh, all of these movies are ones that I have not seen before, and that is what we are doing as the criteria. I have not seen them, but I have tried to kind of sequence them in some sort of theme. So... I figured we'll do the first Friday the 13th and then the fourth one um, because, I mean, the fourth one is regarded as the best one. That one and the sixth one. Uh, And then the first one, I just, you know, I want to see it when Jason wasn't the main bad guy, Uh, which is why Frank Zidi actually left production. (laughs) Got to bring up Frank Zidi whenever I can. Friend of the show. Um, We know him well. We know him well. Uh, he did all the prosthetics and stuff for the first Friday the 13th movie um, where I think it's Jason's mom who's the bad guy, the the slasher. Um, and then in the second one, they're like, okay, now Jason's going to be the main bad guy. And then Frank Zidi was like, wait, but the whole thing, why Jason's mom is the slasher is because Jason drowned in the beginning of Friday the 13th. That doesn't make any sense. I'm leaving. And you guys will never make another Friday the 13th movie again now that I'm gone. And then they did it. And then they did it nine more times. Um, but Frank ZD did come back for number four because he wanted to kill off um, his creation. So they did it. They killed him off and then he stayed dead. That's the crazy thing. 
Um, and then Nightmare on Elm Street, I feel like that's just a blind spot for me. I should have seen that by now. Classic. It's a classic. Um, week four, this is the one I'm least looking forward to, but I'm just going to get all of these movies out of the way. Um, it is the jump scare popcorn horror era. So Maybe. we are going to be watching Paranormal Activity from 2007, Insidious from 2011, and The Conjuring from 2013. Let's go. Um, I hate jump scare horror. Um, it is, I, I, I just, I do not like it at all. And it's, be I, fine. I'll be fine. I'll do it. And I'm like, <laughs> whatever, I'll just get them all out, out of the way. Uh, I should probably see them. I know Insidious is regarded as like actually a really good movie, but I know that it is absolutely littered with jump scares. I don't know anything about the conjuring except they have really milked that thing. The Conjuring is like the new Friday the 13th. We're like, except Friday the 13th never got any spinoffs really, except for like the Freddy versus Jason movies, uh, which we are not going to watch. Um, but now it's like the Conjuring and also the nun and Annabelle and just like every little thing in the Conjuring has their own spinoff franchise now. Um, so we'll see the one that started it all. Um, and then week five, the final one, is going to be the modern age. So we are going to start off with the witch, the witch from 2015. The witch. The, the witch with two Vs. It's an old-timey movie. It has a young Anya Taylor-Joy in it. So that'll be cool. Uh, moving on to Us from 2019. Jordan Peele's, I guess, follow-up to Get Out. Uh, and then 2020's The Empty Man. I don't know anything about The Empty Man, but it has a cool poster. So there we go. I just, I don't know. I had to pick a third one. So that that is the schedule. I'll post it in the description of this podcast so that you can review it and refer back to it if you are interested in watching some of these movies. Then we will get started in two weeks in earnest with the Hays Code era, which I think will be pretty Cool. So there's that. That's the schedule. Um, we'll move on to some stuff before we dig into the first week of our Halloween marathon. We do have some news. Interesting news, I suppose. Uh, we did get a release date for The Boy and the Heron. Um, which is no longer Miyazaki's last movie. Um, I think officially now, like it was like, yeah, he's, he's not done, but like he officially like reported to studio Ghibli headquarters with like idea and was like, this is what I want to make. So, you know, it's in pre-production now. So it's officially no longer Miyazaki's last movie, but the boy and the heron is coming out on December 8th. So right around the corner, I know it's already been out in Japan for a couple months now, but it'll be cool. I'm looking forward to it. I've heard nothing but great things. Um, so that's pretty cool. I'll be seeing that. Uh, I don't know. I'll probably see that opening weekend. Uh, and I also wanted to briefly 
talk about uh, the Wes Anderson short films that came out this last week. Was it either this last week or the... No, it was... I'm trying to think. I think it was last week. Uh, we had four Wes Anderson short films all based on Roald Dahl short stories. Um, the first one was The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar and Poison and then The Swan and then The Rat Catcher. Um, the Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar was the longest one. It clocked in at about 40 minutes and then the other ones were 15 minutes a pop. Um, they, I, I, I say that this is like, as someone who's a big Wes Anderson fan, I, this is like up there with some of his best stuff, in my opinion. Um, I don't think that people should sleep on these, uh, just because they're short films, cause these are fantastic. Um, they're each like little short vignettes. I mean, they're all based on short stories. They might have just taken the text and just pasted it into a screenplay format. Um, but I mean, the production value, everything, it feels like a stage play, which kind of goes back to what he did in Asteroid City. Um, but yeah, everything feels very practical. There's like very little cuts. It's a lot of like long shots where like the stage hands, you can see them like they're in costume to kind of fit in with whatever scene they're doing, but they are there and they are like looking at the camera and like showing the camera what they're doing. So it's, it's really, it's kind of a surreal kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and like all of the cameras are, uh, all of the actors are constantly looking at the camera. Um, whenever they are like narrating, uh, I guess what the story, you know, what, what is actually written on the book, they're looking directly at the camera Then whenever they are giving dialogue, they're looking at the other characters, which does add for like, make for really weird parts where like a character will narrate and then say something and then finish with he said, and then have to quickly look at the camera and then look back at <laughs> who they're looking at. Um, it's a weird kind of balancing act, but, um, I thought that it made for some really great, um, Wes Anderson, you know, kind of pretty shots. What, what, you know, what you're going to get a lot of good production value. Um, I will say, and I need to get out in front of this. I have been, uh, an, I don't want to say an avid hater of Benedict Cumberbatch, but I think I, I I have gone on record and said that he is the most overrated actor <laughs> working in Hollywood right now. Um, I still think that is true because I have not seen Benedict Cumberbatch give a performance that is not Benedict Cumberbatch being weird, quirky Sherlock type guy. Cause he, I'm, and frankly, I have not seen enough stuff with him in it, but like, it's just like, oh, he's just being a weird, like, off-putting guy who's, like, too smart for his own good. Okay, that's Benedict Cumberbatch. That's just all he is to me. Uh, and he keeps getting these roles where he is doing that same thing. Um, and sometimes he's doing it in an American accent, but that doesn't change <laughs> that he is doing the same thing over and over again. Um, 
And he is in two of the the shorts here. He plays Henry Sugar in the wonderful story of Henry Sugar uh, and Poison. Um, and I thought that he was pretty good. Um, I, I it, He's doing something a little different. I mean, it's, it's this weird kind of play-esque thing he's doing with his performance. Um, but I, I don't know. I was way more impressed with everyone else on the cast, honestly. Um, the, the cast for all, all four of these, to an extent, are, are the same people. Um, the main four of them are Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Ralph Fiennes, uh, Dev Patel, and oh frick, I just forgot this guy. I forgot this guy's name last week. Oh, Ben Kingsley. That's it. The guy who played Gandhi. He's also in Shutter Island. I couldn't remember his name. Um, yeah, and it is the four of those guys uh, show up to an extent, I think. And well, the the Rat Catcher is really its own thing, and I guess so is the Swan. But Poison and the Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, I think, have all four of them in it. I think. Um, well, Ralph Fiennes is in all of them because he plays Roald Dahl. So, uh, and Roald Dahl is in all of them, uh, to varying degrees. Uh, sometimes he's just in one shot and he says one line and then the story moves on. Um, but yeah, I, I will say, um, I was thoroughly impressed with Dev Patel's performance. Uh, I have not seen a lot of stuff he's been in. I've seen the film Lion that he was in, which is, I remember it being pretty good. Um, and he was, I think, I think the big thing that put him on the map is probably, he was in the Green Knight, um, one of the best posters of, of the 2020s. Uh, but I have not seen that. So I, I've not seen a lot of his stuff, but I was very impressed with him in the poison and wonderful story of Henry sugar. Uh, I think he should join the, the Wes Anderson cast. I, I was, I want to see him in more stuff. Um, and I thought he fit in great. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't think really, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really see him becoming a regular in the Wes Anderson thing, but Dev Patel like fit in perfectly. Um, so yeah, I thought it was great. And it was also great seeing Ralph Fiennes and Wes Anderson get together again. Cause, uh, he was obviously the, I guess one of the main characters in grand Budapest. He was like the, the main concierge guy. Um, so it was nice seeing him again in a Wes Anderson movie. And he is in here all the, t all over the place. I think he's in all four. So some great stuff. Uh, they're all on Netflix, so I would highly recommend. I would highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, I would say that the Rat Catcher is probably the weakest one. Uh, my favorite one is Poison. So, but I, I would say probably watch them in the order they came out. Uh, not that it really matters, but um, I don't know. That's the way I did it, and I felt like it had a pretty good arc that way. So. There you go. I just wanted to talk about it because I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. 
and I was very excited for these four short films. So there you go. Watch it now. Or not now. After this podcast. After podcast. I already watched it now, sorry. Uh-huh. Oh, I already pressed play. I gotta watch it. Well, yeah, I gotta, I gotta pause our recording real quick so I can watch this. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's fine. Welcome back, everybody that just left and watched all the short films and came back to the podcast. I'm assuming that you watched them all and then remembered where you heard about it. and then I fell came asleep. Back. Oh, frick. And gave us money. <laughs> and gave us money. You played all of our podcasts while you were sleeping. Yes. Um, yes. Which you can do. We can do. We can. None of the, the podcasts are monetized, but. But you could do <laughs> you it. You could do it. Bump up our, our plays, I guess, which uh, Lord knows Duration we desperately need. <laughs> uh, that's not true. Uh, I'm happy with our viewership. It's not very big, but I'm happy with it. Um, but yeah, check out the Wes Anderson things if you didn't just leave and come back. Um, do it after the podcast, though. But check it out. Um, I think without further ado, we'll jump into the Halloween Horror Marathon Week 1. The... Uh, the pre haze code era. This is, I think, referred. Well, not quite. We're in. I don't remember where the eras start because there, there's generally accepted to be a golden era and then a silver era. But at this point, you know, movies as a medium had only really been around for ten-ish years. <laughs> in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari's, uh, case. Um, the first motion picture, uh, at least feature length motion picture was in 1907. Um, and it was a, uh, four second clip of a black man on a horse. I'm just kidding. That, that, that no surprise really me if it was, but no, that, that was not the first feature length motion picture. It was not a, a four second moving picture of a black man on a Dang, horse. I thought it was. No, I was just quoting the us, or not us, the nope thing. Us. Um, it's like, I think that was the first, like, sequence of motion pictures is a four-second clip of a black man on a horse. I don't remember what the oh, first motion real. picture is. Uh, feature length. I need to Iron say Iron Man 2. It's probably Iron Man 2. <laughs> the first one was a sequel. Yes. Star Wars. Uh, That's true. They started with the second one back in 1907, before the comic even came out. Yeah, before Robert Downey Jr. was even (laughs) there was even a Robert Downey Sr. Or as as he's known, Robert Downey. Robert Downey. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so you know, we are still in weirdo experimental mode. Here, uh, we're starting with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, made in 1920. Um, This is the oldest movie I've ever seen. Before this, it was Nosferatu, which came out in, I think, 22. Um, Because I watched it last year in October because it was the 100-year anniversary. Well, I'm one-upping that this year by watching a 103-year-old movie. Um, this movie is German made. It's a silent movie. 
uh, clocks in at about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and straight up, I think I watched the, the, a bad version of it. Um, because, uh, I watched it on Tubi, which, um, sounds reliable. You know, (laughs) you know, it was fine. Um, but I think the, the version that Tubi has might, and this might surprise you. I think it might be a VHS rip. What? Um, nice. Because the quality was, I think, SD, which you wouldn't think would matter in a movie that is over 100 years old. <laughs> but I had a really hard time making out what was happening. And I attributed that to the age. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's over 100 years old. I'm sure the preservation of it, you know, they weren't thinking about that in the 1920s. Uh, they probably in- didn't have HD yet, you know. No, not quite. Um, and, you know, it was the 20s in Weimar Republic, Germany. I think they had other things to worry about. Uh, namely, getting food and taking your wheelbarrow full of cash to the marketplace to get one loaf of bread. Um so, I don't know. That's what I assumed was the issue. But then I went on YouTube, and I'm like, okay, what is the point? Like, why why do people really like this? Because I walked away being like, okay, like, why, why is this regarded as one of the best, like, movies of all time? Like, you see this movie brought up a lot in, like, you know, classic movies that every movie buff should see or whatever. Um and I was watching YouTube clips and uh, I watched a review and that person was using clips from the movie that were like uh, HD. Like I could actually see what was going on. And I was like, oh, I missed so much. And also, I think the Tubi cut is missing footage. Um, I, <laughs> I looked at the runtime of the Tubi one and it was an hour and six um, and when I looked up the runtime, uh, just independently, it said it was an hour 16. So I think the Tubi cut actually cut 10 minutes out. <laughs> and based on the clips that I saw in the review were like some of the best shots in the movie. So I feel very gypped and, right. uh, you know, I, 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 I think I goofed. Um, so I'm not going to let that influence my review of this movie because I think I did, I did an accident and I, you know, whoops, but we'll, we'll go into what this movie is and why it's so highly regarded. Um, this movie takes place very like squarely in the German expressionism period, uh, of art. Um, I think... Uh, a lot of people would recognize the style. Uh, it's very, very close to what Tim Burton um, does. Um, not so much like modern Tim Burton. Think like Beetlejuice or or something like that, where there's like the architecture is kind of like weird and wavy and like, you know, they have like giant houses <laughs> um, uh, and everything's just kind of like kind of weird and surrealist. Um, and I think 
so like watching that was like okay that's kind of cool like the the production design was you know m you know leagues ahead of what i was thinking was possible in 1920 uh, especially seeing nosferatu which mostly takes place in people's houses uh and a castle that they filmed in for a, a little bit um but then this one actually you know they they designed sets and and they did some interesting things with like shadow work which i unfortunately was not able to see in the tubi cut um but the the plot of the cabinet of dr caligari is that there is this guy who's named dr caligari and he oh. is a uh, i'm going to have to i think i remember what it is but i might be wrong it's a somnambulist um Obviously not a thing that exists, and when I looked it up, it did not give me a clear answer. But based on the review I watched, he is a guy that, like, uh, hypnotizes people while they're, like, sleepwalking. Um, so, yeah, the only thing I could see when I searched Somnambulist, it was, like, someone who sleepwalks. I'm like, that's not what's happening here. Um, so basically, like, Dr. Caligari, he has, like... Uh, a person that is like in a box and they're just like asleep and then he like opens up the box and then he can like command where this guy goes. Um, and so he uses his talents as like a sideshow and like a carnival and people will ask the guy who's sleepwalking, you know, some prophecies or whatever. Like one guy's like, when will I die? And then the sleepwalking guy whose name is Caesar is like, you're going to die Tonight, you won't be alive by the time the sun rises. And then the guy who asks, like, ha ha, funny joke, I'll still be alive. But little did he know that Dr. Caligari had a trick up his sleeve. And basically Aww. anyone who asked him a question, he just sent Caesar over there and killed him. <laughs> um, so that's where, like, the interesting kind of shadow play comes in, where it's like... Um, It'll be like there's just a shot of the wall, and then you like see like the shadow of Caesar, like with a giant knife, and he stabs a, a person, uh, which was not in the Tubi cut. Uh, so I'm I'm very salty about that. Uh, but so that so that is the general plot. There are some big twists and turns. Uh, I think this movie is kind of known as being a a twisty movie. Um, I don't want to give too much away because I did, you know, I did not give a warning for these in advance. Uh, and this movie is choo -choo. kind of, uh, eh, kind of rests on twist. So yeah. Although to be honest, to be honest, uh, I was not uh -huh. able to really make out what the, uh, twist was in the to be cut. Um, Really, frankly, <laughs> frankly, I should have just went on YouTube because there are entire cuts of the movie on YouTube for free and they look better than the Tubi cut and there's no ads um, because the movie's over 100 years old. It's in the public domain. <laughs> like, I really should have just <laughs> went on YouTube, um, but eh, whatever. It's fine. Um, so... That was the first movie. Uh, I, I will say, unfortunately, this was my least favorite one that I watched. Um, I've never really liked silent movies. Uh, I've seen a couple, 
Um, I still think Nosferatu is better than... I, I like this one, Nosferatu over Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, um, but I also like City Lights more than I like Nosferatu. So this is my least favorite silent movie that I have seen, but overall it is a genre that I do not really um, like a whole lot. Um, but I know that they are regarded as classics, and this is certainly not the last time I'm going to be talking about a silent movie on this podcast. It, it will be the only time I talk about a silent movie in the month of October and the first week of November. Um, because we are going to be talking about Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, both movies came out in 1931. They're both talkies. Um, sometimes they talkie a little bit too much, if you ask me. Uh-huh. Haha, <laughs> very funny. Uh, the thing that is kind of funny about this movie is that they they both came out in the same year, and there's like a cast overlap. Um, the the person that plays Renfield in Dracula plays Igor in Frankenstein. Uh, the person that plays Van Helsing in Dracula plays. Uh, one of the doctors that helps Frank and Dr. Frankenstein once his uh, experiment is complete and dealing with the monster. Um, so it was just kind of weird seeing those two faces back to back. Cause I watched uh, Dracula first and then I watched Frankenstein the day after. Um, so I was like, Oh wait, is that the guy from Dracula? Oh wait, that's the guy from Dracula. So it's, it's kind of fun. Um, and also, Igor in this version of Frankenstein is named Fritz. So I don't know when that changes. Um, I, I also don't know um, uh, what that character's name is in the book. But, uh, yeah. The thing that is interesting, we'll talk about Dracula first, because that was the one that I saw first. Um, this version of Dracula, fun fact, is not based on the book Dracula. It is based on the movie Nosferatu, um, which is kind of, kind of about Dracula, but they never say the word Dracula in Nosferatu, mainly because they did not get permission from the author of Dracula. <laughs> um, uh, but they do say Dracula in Dracula, obviously. Um, but they also say Nosferatu. Um, but I... I and to be honest, I have not read the book Dracula. I have a cursory knowledge of what happens in that book. Um, and th this movie does not really go into that at all. Um, the, the, I'll say that the best thing about this movie is Bela Lugosi as Dracula. Um, he is like genuinely creepy. Um, and some of that is, you know, um, obviously the great costume and it's a very iconic look, you know, um, for, for decades after this movie, uh, when people thought of vampires, it was Bela Lugosi style, you know, the big cloak with the, the big collar that's popped up and the slick back hair and, you know, doing the claw motion that you have to be double-jointed and Hungarian to do, according to Ed Wood. Um, and so, yeah. I And also, you know, I, I am 
self-admitted a very big fan of the film Ed Wood, which goes into the um, the private life of Bella Lugosi uh, much later in life. Um, so it was kind of fun to watch this movie after seeing Ed Wood, um, which I'm sure now that I watch Ed Wood again, there's going to be things that I notice. Um, but again, this movie, I was kind of disappointed by it. Uh, there's a lot of talking and a lot of like, we need to stop that Dracula. He's a vampire. Oh, well, you're a man of science. You wouldn't even, you don't know what a vampire is. Those are kids tales and like no i am a scientist and i know that dracula is a vampire because i didn't see him in a mirror and they're like oh no that's fake um and it takes for a lady to get sucked full uh you know sucked all her blood out and they're like okay maybe dracula is a vampire um and so you know it's just kind of lame the, the movie, uh, it, it's not great. Um, it really is. It's the entire thing is based on Bela Lugosi's performance. And to be honest, he's not in it enough. Uh, he's in it for like the first like 20, 30 minutes. And that's the best part of the movie. When we just get to see Dracula be really suave and like, you know, lure people in and, and like be very charming like that. That's the best stuff in the movie. Um, and you know, that's where Bela Lugosi really shines. And then like, you know, about a third of the way in, it completely shifts focus. And it's like, now we're going to focus on Van Helsing. And I understand Van Helsing is very important to the story of Dracula. He's, you know, the vampire hunter that eventually kills Dracula um, and, you know, obviously he's got to be in it, but then he becomes the main character and Dracula just becomes a big bag of monster. It's like, oh, that's lame. I want Dracula to be like the main guy, which maybe I need to watch some newer iterations of Dracula. I know Francis Ford Coppola did one, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Unfortunately, it has Keanu Reeves in it, giving the worst English accent maybe ever portrayed to film. Um, which, I mean, this is like right off the, the coattails of like Bill and Ted. So it's like really weird seeing like young Keanu Reeves trying to do a British accent. Not that Keanu Reeves these days can really pull off accent stuff. He's just always kind of Southern California guy. Um, but yeah, especially then it was like, it's bad. I, I recommend if you have not seen any clips from Bram Stoker's Dracula, just search Keanu Reeves, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and you will, there's a barrel of laughs there for you. Um, but I know that Francis Ford Coppola, uh, stuck m like more closely to the book. Um, the book I think is like a series of journals based on what I, the very little I know. Uh, it's like based on, a bunch of like different characters accounts. Um, and maybe I'm wrong cause I've not read it, but that is what I've heard. Um, and so, yeah, not really, this movie's based on Nosferatu. Uh, and frankly, Nosferatu did it better. I mean, that, that creature design is scary. It scared the, the living lights out of me in that SpongeBob episode. I tell you what, 
which I saw behind the scenes footage. Apparently, they actually got a guy in that costume to do that, um, which I don't understand why, because I'm pretty sure I remember that shot. And when I was watching Nosferatu, I'm like, oh, he's reaching for the light switch, which, of course, wasn't in a, a thing. And uh, well, it was a thing in 1922, but it was not in the castle in Nosferatu. Um, so I don't know. I, and that may have been a goof where it wasn't actually from the SpongeBob episode. But I think the SpongeBob episode like recreated the entire thing. Did they really? Yeah. Oh, which Wait. is pretty impressive that's very extra <laughs> yeah it is but. <laughs> maybe they just couldn't get the rights for nosferatu maybe and so they're like, well we have to go around and do a cover of it as it were um yeah i don't know uh but you know dracula i feel like it is kind of required viewing uh you know but i wouldn't say it's particularly good but you know, if you're into movies, you should see Dracula. Um, but what's what's interesting, I think I would like even more is that I know uh, that Dracula, at least this version of it, was a stage show before. And Bela Lugosi would go around and tour to all sorts of like different cities and they would just do Dracula. And that might be cool. I, I would have loved to have been alive during that time just to see Bela Lugosi live as, as Dracula. That would have been really something. Um, but, you know, can't Maybe do that day. anymore. He died of morphine overdose. Uh, classic. Classic. Uh, I don't know if he OD'd on morphine or if it was like he died because of morphine. I don't know. Like, later in life, he was a drug addict, and because of that, all of the studios like, ah, that's bad for business. So then he wasn't really in movies, which is why he was in Ed Wood movies. Uh, really bad Z-tier level stuff. Um, which is, it's sad, because he's really good in Dracula. Um, so, yeah. Maybe maybe we'll see some of Bela Lugosi later. Not in this Marathon, I don't think. Unless he shows up in The Wolfman, which I, I don't think so. <laughs> but who knows? I might be surprised. Um, but, yeah, that's Dracula. Frankenstein, on the other hand, slaps. This movie's awesome. I love Frankenstein. Um, honestly, maybe not a big fan of, like, the Frankenstein mythos. Um, I think earlier this year I reviewed the... Uh, uh, it was like a 2000s version of Frankenstein where they like did like a transhumanism thing where it was like eh, like a modern retelling of it and is weird. And like the, the Frankenstein's monster was like acting like a baby the whole time, which I guess is probably accurate to what a, you know, an artificial life would act like, especially if they were never educated. Um but yeah, I just thought it was weird. It was, it was a weird movie and it had the lady from the matrix in it. Um, back another Keanu Reeves reference. Uh, uh -huh. ah, it all ties in together. Um, but Frankenstein, 1931, um, 
it's I don't know. It's gonna be a hard one to talk about just because I feel like everybody knows everything about it. It was almost like comical watching it. We're like, oh, this scene happens, and then literally the next one's like, oh yeah, that I've seen that before, and then oh yeah, they all get their torches <laughs> and pitchforks, and they all run off into the night trying to, to Shrek run. Swamp. They all go to Shrek <laughs> Swamp. This is the part where you run away. I've seen this. I know. I know this. Um, I will say that, you know, I don't know if this is a Mandela thing or if, uh, it was just never really this pronounced, but the, it's alive scene. Um, he never really screams it, at least in this movie. I don't know. Maybe in he the bride of it. Frankenstein. No, he's just like, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. But he never really says it's alive. You know, like. You've, you've seen parodied so many times before. Um, and maybe, you know, that's probably for a comedic effect to have that, you know, probably exaggerated a bit. Um, but he just kind of like says it over and over again. Um, the weird thing about this movie is that, yes, Frankenstein, I'm just going to call the monster Frankenstein. I know people nitpick and like, actually it's Frankenstein's monster. Shut up. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> if I talk about the Dr. Frankenstein, I'll say Dr. Frankenstein, but I'm going to call the monster Frankenstein. So if that bothers you, then you can leave, frankly. I don't want your business. Not that you're giving me any business, but I wouldn't yeah. want your business anyway. Um, but yeah, like Frankenstein, uh, like when he wakes up, you know, it's weird because like the Igor character named Fritz immediately just like starts whipping him and like taunting him with fire. And I'm like, why, <laughs> where did this come from? Why, why is this character just like torturing this thing? They've been working for months, assumedly, you know, digging up bodies and cutting down hanged men, uh, stealing brains from, you know, sciencey places uh and then they finally do it they achieve their goal and then the assistant guy's like ah i'm gonna just walk around him with fire and whip him a bit just just for fun and then the and then dr frankenstein's like oh he's always he's always taunted him you know i don't it's like dude step in why are you letting this happen um so that was kind of weird but, you know, it was the 30s, so it, it was probably fine. You know, it was fine back then to beat children, essentially. I, I guess that was true. You could beat children in the I 30s. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you could whip a child. Well, I, I don't want to say that because, you know, at least in America, you could whip children as long as their skin wasn't white, but... I don't really want to get into that. Uh, let's just, let's get back to that's Hollywood. That's, that's movie. a, <laughs> that's a, a different kind of Frankenstein movie. Uh, one that I don't want to watch. That's the black exploitation Frankenstein movie. Yeah. If it has Rudy Ray Moore, hard, then I would watch it. <laughs> um, I do eventually want to watch the black exploitation, I guess, recreation of the exorcist which is just called Black Exorcist. That um, sounds good. 
pay forward. Yeah, it, they they made it. I think it was never officially released because um, the studio that made The Exorcist saw it and was like, this is literally a shot-for-shot recreation of our movie. You can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> and so I think, I think it was never officially released, but I think you can find copies of it, you know, floating around out there. So if someone took the time to like shot for shot recreate my movie, I'd take that as an honor and be like, yeah, do what you want. I'm sure the, well, actually, I don't know. William Friedkin's a weird dude. Um, But I I don't know if he specifically had a problem with it. It was the studio that was like, don't release a movie and make money. (laughs) Don't make money off of essentially our movie. It would be like if like, what's that breaking bad parody? Uh, Uh, the uh, frick. Um, <laughs> I want to say Ozzy Mandios, and that's definitely not it. That's definitely not it. It's the. It's not a parody. It's just kind of like. It's just the. The. Is it Argentinian? I think it's Argentinian. Yeah. It's an Argentinian remake of like specific episodes of Breaking Bad. I don't think it's every episode, but it's the big ones. Um. And I don't know how that was released. I, I don't know the story of that, honestly. I, I should. It was just so good they had to let it. I don't know. I've seen clips and it, it doesn't look... Well, I was about to say it doesn't look as good as Breaking Bad, but I, that kind of goes without saying. <laughs> that kind of goes without saying. Um, but, yeah, so Black Exorcist, I do need to see it eventually. Especially since I love The Exorcist so much. I would be interested to see what the black exploitation version of that is. Um, but I guess back to Frankenstein, it was just like every single scene, you know, it was like, Oh, it's alive. It's alive. And then the monster breaks out. And then, uh, the monster finds a little girl. And then there's like a moment of humanity where like the entire movie, the, the Frankenstein is, uh, viewed as the bad guy, just a, a big monster with with as the strength of ten men. And suddenly, you know, he finds uh, a little girl playing by a lake and they they have fun throwing flowers in the lake. Um, but then, you know, takes it to a little too far. He throws the girl in the lake. Oopsie. Um, as an accident, you know, Common mistake. Honestly. they were, they were having fun. Like they were throwing flowers on the lake and the girl was like, see, they float. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Frankenstein's like, yo, I bet that would work with you too. And so he chucks her in the pool. Uh, little did he know she can't swim. So she drowns, but eventually she does float. So oopsie true. proves the point. Um, but that does make the town quite angry. <laughs> that he murdered a, a small girl. So then, you know, they all grab their torches and they go up to the, the, uh, well, there's a windmill where Frankenstein is holed up and he kidnaps Dr. Frankenstein. And then they have a tussle and, uh, he chucks Dr. Frankenstein on one of the blades of the windmill and then he falls down and then, You know, they're like, he's alive. It's fine. Let's burn the windmill. And then they burn the windmill and then the movie ends. Um, I really should have been this abrupt with all of the other movies because all of these movies just end. And then it cuts to (laughs) fanfare and credits that are 20 seconds long because it took 30 people to make a movie back then. Um, Which is 
<laughs> awesome. Uh, I will say it was kind of weird in the opening credits of Frankenstein. Um, you know, it had the cast and it had who they're playing. Um, but then the monster was just credited as question mark. I'm like, that's <laughs> weird. I've never seen a question mark in the opening credits of a movie before. Uh, but then in the closing credits, they're like, don't worry, guys. The monster was played by Boris Karloff. And I go, okay, oh, thank good. you. Um, which I we might be seeing more of him. Boris Karloff was all over the place in, in horror movies. Um, I don't know if he's going to be in any of the movies that we have coming up, but uh, this won't be the last time we talk about Boris Karloff, I'm sure. But that, that'll do it for, for this week's little uh, adventure into the horror movies of yesteryear. Uh, all very influential, uh, you know, especially Dracula. Uh, I guess all of them kind of are. I'd say The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is probably the least because it's a little artsy German movie that I don't know how many people saw. Um, especially here in the States until way later. Um, but that'll do it. So next week we'll be off, but then the week after we'll be watching The Wolfman, I Walked with a Zombie, and The Curse of Frankenstein. Which, How would you uh, walk with a zombie? That's a great question. And this is before Dawn of the Living, or, you know, Night of the Living Dead. So this, when we're talking with <laughs> about a zombie here, it is little little i don't know little monsters that are like caribbean things um which i'm sure we'll talk about because I, I it's probably going to be problematic considering it's a movie from 1943 um, oh they always are they they always are <laughs> i would say it's a great year <laughs> a great year for movies um uh, Man, I, I wish I was alive in 1943. <laughs> me too. Uh, me too. Would have been great. I would have loved to be in Iwo Jima. Um, I don't know if that happened. That probably didn't happen in 1943. Wasn't that? Uh, no, that wasn't. I don't know why. I would have I loved to be in the Battle of the Bulge. Yes. That definitely wasn't what a great name. Yes. But... Yeah, so those will, those will be the movies that we're talking about next time. So if you are interested in any of those, uh, we will have more, uh, I guess, spoiler discussion. Although I did kind of go into the ending of Frankenstein, but I mean... It's Frankenstein. <laughs> it's Frankenstein. <laughs> Everybody knows that story. So uh, that's, that's that. Uh, I did look ahead at the cast of The Curse of Dr. Frankenstein and... Who they have playing Frankenstein is a wild choice. I'll just say that. Um, it is the uh, <laughs> the legend, Christopher Lee. Um, of course, Ooh. most known for playing Dracula, which is interesting. I didn't know that he played Frankenstein. Um, but what's interesting is that Peter Cushing plays Dr. Frankenstein, um, who Peter Cushing played Grand Moff Tarkin in the original Star Wars movie, which was a role uh, originally offered to Christopher Lee, and Christopher Lee turned it down because he's like, this is stupid. I don't want to be in a sci-fi B-movie. 
and then Peter Cushing just got all the royalties, you know. He made that Star Wars money, and then Christopher Lee's like, I made the biggest mistake of my life. But, you know, fortunately for Christopher Lee, he was able to, <laughs> to rectify that decision by being an Attack of the Clones. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, maybe not the best decision-making. But, you know, back in the 50s, he was uh, a true force to be reckoned with. So we'll, we'll see him as Frankenstein in The Curse of Frankenstein, which is, I don't know if this is going to be a paranormal twist on the story. <laughs> um, it's a weird title. Um, I was originally going to do The Bride of Frankenstein, but I think that came out in 1933, which would have been before The Hayes Code came out. So, unfortunately, it just missed the criteria. Um, and also there are a bunch of movies that I really wanted to include in this marathon, but I wanted to keep it succinct and keep it to three movies a week because I don't want to watch more than that. Frankly, watching three movies a week is going to be a struggle no matter what, but I'm going to try to do it to keep with the marathon. Um, so there you go. That's it. That's it for me. I think we're going to toss it on over to Babby for music and possibly propaganda. Music. Yes. Uh, always propaganda. Uh, always propaganda. But as always, take it away. Sometimes music. Sometimes yeah. Not always, but oh. <laughs> um, yes. We have one big old monster Mondo release this week, but I'll talk about some smaller stuff first. Um, I, I think we'll talk about King Gizzard right away. Uh, I listened to those three songs. Cool. I didn't. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I'm like, this is half the album. <laughs> oh, it is? Yeah, there's seven songs on the album. Oh. So I'm like, I'm going to wait. <laughs> okay, I did um, not know that. And from the sounds of them, it's going to be one gigantic song because everything flows into each other flawlessly. Oh. So. Yes, I did notice that. Yeah. Um. um <laughs> no. Maybe a reaction to that? Possibly? I don't know if I'm going to like it. <laughs> I, oh, I thought you were going to like this one quite a bit. Um, well, okay. I was really into Thea or whatever the mm -hmm. first one is. That's this, the only one I listened to. I'm like, oh, he's going to dig this. I really liked it. And then the yeah. silver cord is kind of like, okay, I see what they're doing. It's more techno. Mm -hmm. And then the set is like straight up like dance house techno. And I'm like, ah. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm, that's not really my scene. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe I, I, I am, we'll, we'll I am a King Giz fan. Yeah. 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 But I did hold back. Cause like, as soon as I started, I'm like, mm. I looked it up and I'm like, there's only seven songs in this and they just gave us three right away, which is an interesting decision. Um, <laughs> so I'm waiting because I want to just groove for the whole thing, but I love retro synthesizers and, uh, I'm definitely into this move going from uh you know straight up metal right into uh techno because why not um i feel like this kind of polar opposite thing is just how king gizzard operates at this point so yeah it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah so that comes out 27th we might do a video on it might not i don't know we'll figure it out later um and sufian dropped a song today didn't listen to it I because didn't we're doing a reaction either. on Friday. Probably we'll talk about that after. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, One on Tricks Point never released an album this week, too. I do want to get to that eventually. Okay. Um, 
because that's getting some pretty good reviews. And I'm a fan of one of Tricks Point Never. I'm into some beepity bops every now and then. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the only other thing, uh, Blockhead released uh, a single to the new album that's going to come out in November, I believe. Um, Blockhead is on Backwoods, which we will be talking about soon. Um, and this is a kind of... It's his album, but there's a lot of collabs on it, like a lot. So uh, got like Danny Brown and Bruiser Brigade and Billy Woods and everybody you could probably think of in that realm. Um, so that's very exciting. So that comes out November, I believe. Um, but I think that's it for new stuff besides the big old boy. Are you sure um, about that? Oh, no. is there more? Is there more? Well, are <laughs> are you excited for the? Random Access Memories drumless oh, yes, release? the drumless version. Spotify sent me a notification, and it's like, there's a new Daft Punk album. Click to save. I'm like, what? And then it's a drumless <laughs> version of Random Access Memories. I'm like, I hate you. I know. I got that, too. And I listened. They released Within Drumless, and I was kind of mm-hmm. excited because mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, if we are getting like new arrangements of these songs mm-hmm. without drums in them, that has some potential. Did but they just it, go in the stems and delete the drum. Yeah, they literally just went in and deleted the drum track, which That's makes awesome. the song flow less well because there's not so the weird. drum fills that transition in between the segments. So it's kind of jarring. Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, well, crap. That's not going to be as good as I thought. It's it weird was. that Random Access Memories is getting like this 50 year old album treatment where they do like literally <laughs> every single version humanly possible. That's true. Just to like get collectors to buy it. I'm like, usually this happens with albums that came out in like the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's like, this is the Beatles anthology. Here's yeah. here's Octopus Garden without the bass in it. Demo from like four years. <laughs> no bass, no guitar, yeah. just instrumental. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's it's a, what is it, 10 years old? 15 years old? Um, I think it came out in like 2012. Well, yeah, 10. So it's like 10 years old. <laughs> I guess it's because Daft Punk. No, 2013. Uh, I guess it's because Daft Punk is over. So they're trying to just like milk it, get every last ounce of it out. Yeah. Um, but whatever. I mean, it's fine. I don't I don't I, think I <laughs> ever need to listen to a drumless version of Random Access Memories. But if I'm really bored one day, I might listen to it. <laughs> After listening to Within, I am definitely not going to check it out. <laughs> just, nah, it's I'm like, good. this is not just worse. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. understand. Because like, that record is so, like, perfect. Like, everything is mm-hmm. there for a reason. So just taking one thing out just makes it worse than the whole. So Exactly. I'm not into it. Yeah, I think I'd agree. <laughs> I'm okay with drumless stuff, but not when the songs are specifically made to have drums in them and then they just, like, delete it. Yeah. Not yeah. the biggest fan of that, usually. Um, but, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for, like, new stuff that came out this week or new news. We still have that yeah. Boy Genius EP coming next week, Friday. The rest. Um, and then we also have a West Side Gun album, so we'll be tuning in for that as well. Um my 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 album uh, that I was most excited for for the, probably the rest of the year came out this week. Um, we got Arm and Hammer's uh, "We Buy Diabetic Test Strips," uh, a, a mouthful of an album to say, um, but I mean it's it's a fitting title for what this thing is. Um, so we have fifteen songs, fifty fifty three minutes. 
Uh, yeah, this is gonna, there's a lot here. I'm not gonna like dive super deep into everything, but I'll have a couple examples of certain things as we go. Um, but this one was interesting because like hearing the three singles, I thought we were in for one thing, um, which was gonna be aggressive in your face, weird, uh, like, you know, experimental hip hop type beats. Uh, and then they dropped and my expectations were like completely in the wrong area. Um, first listen, I was like, this is cool. Uh, but I didn't get it. Um, there was some songs where like that's, they, that stuck out right away, but like overall the singles felt like they were the most cohesive songs and that was it. Um, listened to it again the same day, got a little bit better. Um, you know, it was it was still pretty good, but I still had no idea what to think of it. Um, then I gave it like you know a good five or six hour rest. Uh, <laughs> looked into the album title and tried to kind of reframe how I was thinking about the album. Um, and then we listened to it Friday night on the speakers, uh, just me and my girlfriend, and just focused on the music. Um, and that's when it clicked. Um, I think we were both kind of like in a trance from the minute it started. It was really weird, but yeah, this thing is, I think it's, I'm just going to come out and say it's the best Arm and Hammer record they've done. Um, which is kind of crazy. Cause I think they've been pretty, pretty consistent since they've started. Um, before this album, I would go between like, you know, the last four they've released and say that's their best one on any given day. Um, Everybody knows how much I love Haram. That one's <laughs> still really great. But, like, if you put Haram next to this thing, it's kind of insane, um, the difference. Because Haram's, like, the big thing I loved about Haram was um, the atmosphere they were able to create and how weird and off-putting it was. Um, it was felt very menacing and mysterious. And people that dug into it got a lot of reward doing that um and it just had this really eerie kind of kind of hostile vibe um but it was also very psychedelic and tried to draw you into the soundscape um this one kind of like outclasses it in every way um i feel like all these arm and hammer records sound like you're listening uh to a hip-hop album you're listening you can hear the beat you know kind of where all the instruments are at um once you get to this one, it opens up and there's an entire soundscape, which is really, really, really strange. I have not heard this in like a hip hop record very much. Um, it, it's, it, the mixing of it and everything sounds like it, it was made to be like a dream pop record. Like it's so spacious. It's kind of insane. Um, there's things placed in really random places that fill up the entire mix around your head. And it's really, really disorienting. Um, it's yeah though that's just like my initial thoughts on the soundscape uh without getting into any single song or anything yet um but yeah i looked up the item, the album title and just kind of tried to figure out what was going on with we buy diabetic test trips because it's such an awkward album title um <laughs> to go along with kind of an awkward album in general but um Essentially, like these kind of posters and things are all over the place in New York. Um, and I'd imagine any other inner city low income part. Um, but essentially, it's like because when you're insured and you have diabetes, you get a ton of test strips. Uh, too much, in fact. Um, so what people do is they sell secondhand 
test strips to people because they have extras um, for cheaper than you would get. Because, you know, if you don't have insurance, you don't get that. And for people that are diabetic, this is literally a life or death thing that you need. Um, and it's not free. So uh, these signs are kind of everywhere from like, I don't want to call them scalpers, but it is kind of like scalping, except it's for life-saving healthcare. Um, and these are plastered all over the place in New York. Um, and then adding on to it, like all the album artwork and stuff for this and the liner notes and all that, it's like, you know, posts that are like light posts that are just filled with ads and missing posters and things that are just torn through and ads upon ads upon ads. So it really kind of helps build where this record's trying to get you sound wise, um, of just constantly being advertised to and, these advertisements of life-saving healthcare that you need to buy secondhand because like your government won't give it to you for free, despite you literally needing them to survive. Um, so that's just the title. We can start going into it. There's a lot of themes here and it's going to seem kind of messy. I have like one song pinned down. I usually get one song pinned down from Billy Woods or Arm and Hammer records. And then it takes me a long time to kind of figure out the rest. Um, I've probably listened to this album six or seven times already and it's come out, it came out Friday. Um, so I'm still definitely deep in this thing, which is great because that's what I want in music because it keeps me coming back. Um, but we can start off with Landlines opener. Um, immediately we have JPEG Mafia production, uh, which is fantastic. Um, but it's backwards dial tones and phone like sounds from like old phones, landline phones, mobile phones, everything. Um, it's really disorienting. Like it's a good intro because it kind of dives you into where you're going, but at the same time, it's like, okay, whoa, slow down. Um, you have background vocal vocals, you have random loops going on. Um, and I don't know if I won't go into lyrics too much on this one. Um, just because they these guys go so quick usually. Um, especially a lucid. I feel like a lot of these beats were made for Lucid to do his thing on, and then Billy Woods kind of adds onto it, which is a great dynamic because a Lucid on his own needs a little bit of help usually, um, in my opinion. But I mean, they're both fantastic across the whole album here. Um, but yeah, the beat—it's we don't get a normal, quote unquote, normal beat until about twenty minutes, fifteen minutes into the album, um, which is awesome. But also like okay. This one requires multiple listens. Some albums do that, and sometimes people roll their eyes and, you know, they're like, you need to listen to it multiple times, man. But it is definitely true. Um, I've listened to all of their stuff, and this one threw me for a loop for a couple of listens, which is, like, kind of insane. Um, and I kind of like that it did. I haven't had that in a while where an album just, like, completely stumped me. Um, but very good opener. Um, Peggy does fantastic on the production. Uh this kind of starts the theme of like old technology versus new technology. Um, I think this plays in the album theme too. Cause like when you're in this inner city areas, a lot of people are still using technology from, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, the cars are going to be a lot older, um, all that kind of thing. So it's just pulling you deeper into this inner city theme that they're going for. Um, you can hear railroad tracks and just random ambient noises and sirens and horns across the whole album. Um, but after Landlines goes right into Woke Up and Asked Siri How I'm Gonna Die, which was the second single, I believe, also Peggy production. Um, they changed the mix a little bit on this one. I think it, I actually like this one better. Um, I think this is just what Peggy does. I feel like every time he releases a single and then drops an album, there's two different mixes on it. Um, 
I don't know why he does it, but it's kind of cool because like since I've listened to that track so many times, I'm like, ooh, that sounds different. Um, but really good song still. I still enjoy it quite a bit. Um, I think I like it more in the context of the album than I did as a single because as a single, it felt really weird because this is not... It's a hip-hop song, but there's like barely any drums. The beat is not really a beat. It's more like a sound collage. Um, it's kind of soothing, but also kind of eerie. It's really hard to explain a lot of these beats because it's <laughs> so outside of the realm of what you hear usually in hip-hop albums. Um, this is the first track that kind of starts almost like an ambient soundscape to it. Uh, it's really, really, really weird. But, I mean, weird is the best way to describe this record overall. Um, but <laughs> there's so much here. Uh, yeah, so I did talk about the single a little bit, so I'll move on from there. Um, track three is the flexible unreli unreliability of time and memory. Um, man, this whole album is just a mouthful. <laughs> it's like a Sufjan uh, record. It really is, <laughs> it, which is kind of cool. I, I like it. it. It's this this can be seen as very pretentious if you like listen to this once and don't dig into anything, and then you just stop. Um, so I'm not gonna be try to be pretentious, but at the same time, I'm, I'm gonna be. I know I am. Um, but this this beat starts with like really low bass, and it has a flute on it. Um, this is the first time we hear the players on this album. Um, they have an entire like band of actual instruments, um, live instruments they recorded for this record, uh, which is really cool. I think it adds such a big depth to it. Um, despite a lot of these beats being really glitchy and obviously fully digital, you have these like really nice moments of flutes and uh, several like woodwinds and guitar and live bass that come in. Um, it's like a really, really, really good juxtaposition. Um, the album sounds like something that would come out of like Def Jux, uh, New York hip hop in the nineties with LP and all them. Um, because it, I don't know, it just gives that, it gives that kind of classic hip hop vibe, but it's in every way, not a traditional hip hop album in the slightest. Um, but, uh, track three, it kind of, those, those, uh, flutes kind of go for a while. Um, Elusa does a fantastic verse on it. Um, some background vocals kind of come in and then the beat just switches on a dime. Uh, and this is the first time we actually hear somewhat drums on the record. Um, you know, they are hidden and backwards and the flute is still the star of the, the, the thing. But, uh, this is where I'll start with some lyrics because before this, it was like near avant-garde, uh, songs because there was so much weirdness happening and they were just spitting words at you that I think it'd be impossible to pick out things on first listen. Um, but most of the lyrics are going to be Billy Woods lyrics. Of course, I feel like I know how to read him a little bit better than Elucid at this point. Elucid speaks in like, uh, you know, wizard spells. Um, what? it's kind of hard to figure out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know there's some like medieval feeling about some of his lyrics. He's just really, really strange but it's really good um but yeah we go to billy woods verse um i think one of the best best sequence of lines on the album um i'll just try to do it and then explain it uh so he's talking about i suggest you leave the police sketch half drawn like you realize they would just 
they they describe in Allah, which is just funny. Um, <laughs> uh, but the line is, the choice was Kevin Samuels or Dr. Umar. Gentlemen, the choice is yours, but I assure you, Jimmy Baldwin not coming through that door. Um, choose the ball or the sword. Liquid pour my cup runs over. I still feel poor. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I heard this for the first time. I'm like, what on earth are you doing? Um, so, essentially, uh, Kevin Samuels is... I think he's like a weird Manosphere guy, um, a black Manosphere creator, and the Manosphere is this whole new wave of uh, Andrew Tate-type people where mm-hmm. it's just like blatant misogyny and Sigma grind set culture and all the worst Yikes things you could crowd. think about that. Yes. Um, and then Dr. Umar is uh, like a, a black supremacist who's like anti-race mixing and anti-gay people and... Uh, I don't think he's quite like a uh, a black Israelite or anything. I'm not too sure, but I know that he's a big yikes of a person, and a lot of people make fun of him, and it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. like one of those things on Twitter when you like see someone with like a white woman, and the, the comments are just like Dr. Umar being like, hmm? uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, he's essentially saying uh, the choice was Kevin Samuels or uh, Dr. Umar. So it's like here's the current role models online that you're seeing through your screen. And they're both like awful people. Um, and then he says, but I assure you, Jimmy Baldwin not coming through that door. And then Jimmy Baldwin is a, um, he was an American writer, uh, in like Civil the rights guy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, very tight close to that. Um, and had some, you know, great poetry and writings and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know, just, that line connecting like to modern day woods is weird because I feel like he doesn't, he's not very online, but at the same time, like this is an extremely online bar, but it goes so incredibly hard. Um, yeah. Comparing these two like so-called like black role models, um, both being pretty awful. And then like referencing Jimmy Baldwin, which I'm sure, or James Baldwin technically, but I'm sure a lot of people do not know who that is. Um, yeah, it, it, it's such a good line and the flow he does it in over this instrumental is just godly. Um, yeah, the, it's such a weird way because usually with hip hop albums, I can kind of analyze and go through things and it makes a lot of sense because I feel like everything is like, okay, here's how a standard hip hop track works and we can just dissect these. But like the lyrics are amazing on this record, but the soundscape of it and the vibe that all these tracks give off is just something else. Um, it's almost in a way how TPAB works where you have this fantastic jazz live instrumentation mixed with digital hip hop production. And then you have this amazing story and lyrics tied with it. Um, it's kind of the same way here, except that story is like a David Lynch type thing. And you are just constantly whiplashed by like all these different styles and moods as you go across the record. Um, it's still one that's like going to take a long time to kind of parse through and figure out. But uh, track three is a big highlight for me. Um, track four we have, When It Doesn't Start With A Kiss. Um, again, we actually have drums here. It sounds like a more standard hip-hop track. We still have some really slowed down and reverbed pieces of the beat here. Um, Elucid has this fantastic refrain. It almost has like this more cloud rap, more like floaty type style to it. Um, I wouldn't say it's optimistic, but the sound of it is kind of uplifting. Um, I will say Elucid kills it on this entire record. He does such a good job of matching any attitude on a song. Um, 
And that's what makes a good duo is because he's able to set a tone so well. And then Billy Woods comes in and just knocks it out um, when it comes to lyrics. And like the, a lot of these beats are specifically made for to switch up between these two as they kind of flow in and out of each other um, pretty seamlessly. So it, it, I don't know. It, it's insane. Um, I think we have some more. Yeah, we do have a more beat switches on here. Um, this one is one of the more striking ones. Uh, because you have this more light floaty beat and then it stutters and drops into like this really grimy uh, digital hip hop beat and Billy Woods just starts going off. Um, yeah, there's way too much to talk about, but like he's got lines in here where he does like things where it's like your catalog black Abercrombie and then he's like my crypto multi-layered pyramid scheme Ponzi. Uh, it's just the flow is relentless on this. The rhyme schemes are off the charts. It's kind of hard to describe. Um, this truly is one where it's like you kind of just have to sit down and listen to it and not do much else because there's so much happening that it would be kind of hard to listen to it in the background, which I think is why I was struggling my first couple of listens because these soundscapes are so intricate and complicated. And at the same time, you have two of like the hardest to read rappers out right now, constantly going bar for bar back and forth. Um, it's overstimulation in the best way when you're in the right setting for it. Um, after that track, we have I Keep a Mirror in My Pocket. Um, the mirror here being a phone, kind of black mirror style. Um, starts with a weird kind of xylophone ambient intro. Um, and then, again, sounds like a standard hip-hop song. Uh, I have some jazz elements here, some live horns and stuff. Um, who's the feature on this one? Uh, Cavalier is the feature on this one that starts out the song. Never heard of him. He's got 3,000 listeners, so <laughs> I don't think he's on Backwoods or anything, but he does a pretty good job. Um, but again, this is where the album brightens up a little bit. This is one of the more listenable tracks, um, which is still weird to say because if you put this on any other hip-hop album, it's going to be like, whoa, what is this? Um, but I love the jazz on this one. So good. Um, Elucid has a fantastic refrain that's been stuck in my head. Uh he just says, like, don't invite me to your house. Ask me to remove my shoes and your floors ain't clean, like, four times. And the way he says it, it's just like, yep. That's just, he just says lines sometimes, and they get stuck in your head, and it just feels good. Um, but really, really, really good on that one. Then we go into Trauma Mike, which was the first single. I still absolutely love this song. Um, the kind of, like, banging on trash cans and stuff intro onto it it's pure noise rap if that's even a category of song um it's in your face it's aggressive this is why i thought the whole record was going to sound like i'm kind of glad it's not but this is such a such a good song um again lines that stick in your head billy wood starts starts his verse all all against all my brother in christ there's no i in team uh he does these like really weird meme cultural references and then he just digs into the most obscure, like historical nerdy stuff you've ever heard in your life. Um, and that's the kind of contrast I love from these guys <laughs> overall. But moving on from there, we've got track seven. Uh, I'm going to call it blocked call. Um, it's <laughs> a good move. Yes. But there is more to that. Uh, that word actually, um, N-I-G-G-A-R-D-L-Y. It does have a meaning. It's not attached to the racial slur at all. Um, it just means excessive greedy. Um, but as history went on and language evolved to where there was a racial slur, uh, this word got phased out. Um, so this is not actually anything connected to the word. 
I could technically say it, but I'm not going to do that because that's really uncomfortable. Um, so people don't really use it anymore, but it's important to kind of like figure out what this song's about. Um, and again, just smart writing. The dude's like, he's just smart. He's like, yeah, I'm going to take this old word, uh, make a little double entendre about it. Um, no big deal. It's, it's really, this is maybe one of the best tracks on the record. Um, this beat is so nasty. Uh, August Fanon, uh, worked on this one. Um, there's always a song or two on Arm and Hammer records, which are just so like gritty and dark and like disturbing where it's like, you always wait for that one song. I think this is it. Um, man, this just feels like walking through like a dark alley at night and there's a train in the background. Um, it's just so good. The beat flips a little bit. Uh, Lucid basically just sets up the song for Billy Woods, um, which I think is a good move because he's got three full verses of just, man. Uh, Billy Woods can get really mean when he wants to, and it's really nice when he kind of brings it out because he can go from this very, like, astute, educated, like, historical um, kind of rapper, and then he just goes into this, and it's like, you do not want to mess with this man. This is, like, disturbing stuff. Um Really great verses. It does kind of dig into the meaning of that word. Uh, he kind of does this like very drastic switch where it's like um, he kind of goes into like him over other people and he doesn't care what happens to people and that kind of thing. Um, and the refrain on this song is so good. Uh, he says, my heart pump ketamine is a refrain and the way it hits is just so good. Um, absolutely amazing. After that, we have The Gods Must Be Crazy, which was the final single. I talked about it a little bit last week, but this is actually the song that I think I understood the most, and I feel like I can talk about this one at length a little bit. Um, I'm hoping all the other songs have a lot of stuff for me to pick out like this, because this is just like masterful in the way that all of this ties together. Um, so this is the one that's produced by LP. Uh, crazy beat. I love it. One of my favorites on the record. Not my favorite, uh, like, out of all of them, which is surprising because I, when I first heard this beat, I'm like, ooh, this is the one. Um, little did I know what we were getting through, through all this. But, uh, yeah, the title is a reference to the 1980 movie The Gods Must Be Crazy. Um, I believe this was the this, this movie was about, um, like, a Coca-Cola bottle, like, being thrown out of an airplane, and then it's, like falls somewhere in an African tribe and then they like worship the Coke bottle. Um, yeah. So it takes this concept of quote unquote civilized people, uh, like, you know, having this technology. And then when it goes to quote unquote uncivilized people, um, they kind of like worship it and like do this really weird, uh, kind of hoisting up of this object. Uh, it's kind of a weird, you know, definitely racist, <laughs> uh, you know, sentiment. Um, mm. so that's, that's the first reference to that. Uh, um, the first verse, Billy Woods has five lines and then leaves for about a minute. And I can't believe he just leaves it on this. The song starts and he goes, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, drive-in movie theater, Toyota Cressida, heavy metal speaker. Don't kill the messenger. Henry Kissinger, my album's only feature. And then he just leaves. Um, hardest opening I've heard in a while. Uh, obviously, Zimbabwe, Rhodesia. Rhodesia was before Zimbabwe um, was founded. There was a civil war, and then Zimbabwe Revolutionary Government won, um, which is also where Billy Woods is from when his father worked in that government, so we have some tie-ins immediately there. Um, 
Don't Kill the Messenger, Henry Kissinger is my album's only feature. It's just a bar. Um, but, I mean, Henry Kissinger has wreaked havoc on Africa and Southeast Asia and South America, one of the worst people to ever exist. Um, you know, uh, Diane Feinstein died, which is cool, but, like, I feel like they're, they're still taking the wrong people. Um, yeah. He's right there. But that's for another day. Um, but, yeah, Henry Kissinger is, you know, did a ton of horrible things to Africa. Um Back to Billy Woods, uh, Lucida has a really great verse, but again, like he speaks in wizard tongue, and I don't know how to even start with him. Um, for the most part, he's like he's like a scene setter. Like he's the dude that writes the storyboards and sets the scene through words perfectly. Uh, Billy Woods is the one who kind of knocks it down from that, which is great. Um, but Billy Woods, Woods answers again, uh, the happy, happiest Africans, how I started my verse for Live 885, re- rehearsed for We Are the World and got cut for Chris Hayes. Um, this is referencing Live Aid, honestly, and that whole We Are the World thing. Um, Live Aid was, you know, obviously, I think most people know what Live Aid is, that gigantic benefit concert um, that had a whole bunch of really, really, really famous musicians, most of them being white, um, for a kind of fundraiser uh, to help relieve the uh, famines that were happening in Ethiopia. Um, so, again, we start with this uh, the title of the track, uh, referencing a movie that has a really dodgy concept of, you know, quote unquote, civilized people, civilizing uncivilized people. Uh, and then you have this reference to Live Aid, where a whole bunch of white rich musicians did a concert to raise money for a famine. Um, and then obviously Billy Woods has the joke of him rehearsing his verse for We Owe the World, but then he got cut for Chris Hayes, which is like, uh, the whitest man in general for being a guitarist uh, for Huey Lewis in the news. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, again, just a crazy tie-in in general right here. Um, this also ties directly with Live Aid. Uh, that made me think of USAID, which is the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, cleverly. Um, this is a <laughs> government agency or I think it's it's independent agency of the United States government, um, but this helps for quote unquote uh, civilian foreign aid and development assistance. Um, basically, what USAID does is they take any country that there's quote unquote helping and pump in foreign capital and rise up uh, American supported businesses and that kind of thing, um, which then puts foreign capital in the nation, which makes it dependent on said foreign capital. Um, this is how imperialism works. It's not just all boots on the ground stuff like a lot of people might think it does. Uh, it's inserting capital and then making that country dependent on said capital from outside. Um, that's what happened in a lot of African countries. Um, so tying that to Live Aid, I think, is a really, really, really smart thing to do. Um, this You can see it happening in a lot of African countries. It's actually happening in Ukraine currently as that proxy war continues to go on. Um, so we'll see how that turns out. Um, just a bad situation all in all over there. Um, but this continues to happen to this day. This is a quote unquote humanitarian aid when all it really does is kind of like add another tentacle, uh, and control from the empire. So tying all of that together to live aid and all that, um, and then he goes, white women with pepper spray in their purse, uh, interpolating Beyonce, illegal formations. Again, just funny. Um, 
yeah. <laughs> I think this, some people say this is like referencing like a Hillary Clinton, like the breakfast club scene where she was like, uh, I keep hot sauce in my purse for some reason, because that was like her really sad attempt of connecting with the black community. Um, oh. yeah. Uh, also Hillary Clinton famous for, you know, uh, supporting the, or basically like being one of the lead leaders in, uh, bombing Libya. Uh, with NATO in the early 2010s, um, with Obama. Um, so again, tying all Obama. of it together to imperialism on Africa and how it keeps it uh, purposely underdeveloped. And then you have this funny little benefit concert where all these people are like, oh my God, pray for Africa, all coming from the country that kind of did this, uh, meaning Europe and the U.S. Um, just beautiful tie-ins across this whole song. It's kind of ridiculous because on the surface, you won't think that this song does that because the song is just like a banger. This is the most playable song on the record. Um, absolutely insane. Uh, it keeps going. Billy Woods goes to verse five and he starts with the rock pays and scale diagrams, coke out the sky and rocks big as your hand to Gulfstream five that don't ever land CIA scams, revolutionary plans, overlapping Venn diagrams, overlapping man. I don't know. It's you have to hear the song to kind of the the imagery that this whole verse paints is kind of insane. Um, these are one of these songs where like I could picture the music video as I listen to it in my head. Um, but one of the most like neatly tied up concepts of a song I've ever heard. Um, everything ties together perfectly. There's layer upon layer. The deeper and deeper you dig into this thing, um, and it's a three minute song that most people will just be like, "Yeah, this is a banger. This goes hard." Um, but that's the one that like I was really connected with and was able to kind of like dissect a little bit. Um, it's just absolutely incredible. Um, after that, uh, it does not stop the craziness. Uh, Y'all can't stand right here is the next track. This is crazy. Um, this features Soul Glow, uh, which is two people I believe, um, which are like a I think they're a punk group. Um, I know they have I think. They had a really good album last year. I just have not listened to it yet, but I kind of have to after this. Um, opens with this crazy jazz sample. Um, the the BPM on this must be crazy. I don't know how anybody raps over this. Um, but absolutely crazy. Billy Woods goes insane right away. Um, his first lines are, past my own crime bill. It said, if you're scared, go to church. You could still get killed. Life's hell. Uh, oh, my God. Um, goes into this whole stockbroker rant and then uh, a court case where he's like balaclava on the judge gold fronts looking like West Side Gunny, the West Side Gun that piggy squealed. Um, they're adding a lot of humor into these things. <laughs> this song is so insane, you just have to listen to it. There's too much in here. Um, yeah, uh, one of the members of uh, Soul Glow is called Jungle Pussy. She's on two of the songs in this record. She's crazy. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, the song does not stop. It's insanity upon insanity. Everybody's going really fast. Um, there's a breakdown where I thought the beat was changing, but no, it's just like a almost metal-esque screamo moment. And then the song continues. It's, And then the last part of the song, there's a complete beats, beat switch, and there's like some arpeggiated guitars, and that's it. And Billy Woods just goes over that until the song just ends. I... This is the craziest song I've heard in a while. Um, this comes right after the song with the LP beat that kind of like will break your subwoofer if you're not careful. Um, crazy, 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 crazy. Uh, yeah, I, I guess Elucid on this one goes into like a really cool verse about like uh, this really satirical verse of like he's like 
what kind of world is this? And then he describes like, you know, mangoes being free, drugs being clean, uh, taking your time, chilling, no taxes, um, like some kind of backwards world. And he's like, what kind of world is this? Uh, so really cool motifs on this. Um, after that, we slow down a little bit, at least for one track, which is good. Um, Total Recall is the next song. Um, Kenny Seagal beat here. Fantastic. Uh, it's what you'd expect from Kenny Seagal. It's kind of scratchy, old school. Um, really nice backing vocals on this one. It still has more of this kind of jazz kind of feel, uh, which is really great. But fantastic. Uh, Empire Boulevard follows that. We got some more Jungle Pussy on this song. <laughs> really good. <laughs> uh, Curly Castro, I think, is the standout feature of this track, though. Um, I feel like he's on every single Arm & Hammer record. He was, uh, I think he did, what was he on on Haram? Uh, Chicharrones, I think. Um, I've seen Curly Castro live and in person. Uh, it's he's a, he's a very cool guy. He's very chill, very funny. But when he gets on Arm & Hammer records, I don't know what happens to him, but he like turns into like the most evil person you could imagine. Um, his refrain here is just like demonic. Uh, and he goes very nice and calculated with his verse. Uh, this beat has like a very nice sub bass that kind of dips you lower into the song constantly. Um, it's kind of a drunken kind of feeling, almost a waltz. Uh, really, really, really good. Um, after that, we got Don't Lose Your Job, which is straight chill jazz rap. Uh, man, this one is like, this is where we start hitting these transcendent, uh, almost ambient, relaxing parts of a record that has, at this point, been really insane. Um, really, really, really good. Uh, again, more Billy Woods quotables. Break up weed on one phone, FaceTime on the other. Break up with me, I'm a G, I stay friends with your mother. That's been in my head for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, really, really good. Pink Sifu has a verse on this song. I think he had a he did the um, chorus on Trauma Mike. Uh, Pink Sifu, I'm a big fan of. He has like this really, really, really eccentric kind of way uh, of vo of a vocal inflection, um, but really relaxed on this one. It's just like some crazy flute playing. A lot of live instruments on this one. Um, really good. Super Mooned. We're back into Crazy Town. Uh, Man, DJ Haram did this beat, same as Trauma Mike beat, uh, but they're completely different. I don't even know what this beat sounds like. I, it's hard to even describe it. It feels like when you drive through a tunnel in a city and the yellow lights are on your car and then you go back out and it's like daytime. I, that's the only way I can think about it. I don't even know what that means, but that's what this feels like. Um, Elucid carries this song. Man, he's he's fit for these weirdo beats. He's fit for this like weird abstract ambient type stuff um both do really well billy woods is like low delivery is like really nice on this beat as well um gets even crazier with switchboard next i don't even know what this is it sounds like there's an electric current through the song and there's like a constant whirring of like an engine or something and that's the beat with the drum pattern and it's like what what am i even supposed to think about this um this is the most disorienting track on the record, I think. Uh, it's a constant refrain from a lucid offbeat loud for the first like 30 seconds while you're still trying to digest this beat. Um, a lot of, I don't want to say gibberish from him, but again, it's like, there's a lot of like separate refrains that make you feel certain things and give you certain imagery in your head. And that's what he's good at. Um, but it's a lot to take in on the first listen. Um, Billy Woods has this really kind of creepy verse, uh, about like, I don't know, 
He's like, I can't see it yet, but something's coming. And the beat kind of sounds like something ominous is coming. It never comes, but you're like on that edge that whole time. Um, But he has this really weird verse about like shuffling through a moratorium and then finding your mother in one of them. And it's it's really strange. Um, And then finally we reach the key is under the mat. Uh, Peggy's back. Last song. Uh, I'm glad he has three three beats on this record. I'm so glad they squashed this beef because this record would not be what it is without Peggy. Um, I feel like they specifically needed him for this, for this album. Um, pretty good outro. Again, it's a little bit more laid back. Uh, it has this kind of Armin Hammer mantra type style of an outro stone fruit did the same thing on her arm. Um, kind of a come down from the craziness you just witnessed, but really, really, really good. Um, and that's the whole record. It's, completely off the wall crazy could not have expected this at all um there's still a lot to dig into i feel like i've picked out a couple of the tracks and i am pretty familiar with them but some of the other ones are just completely over my head still um but with that like the soundscape of this record is just important as just as important as the lyrics uh you get everything from like near avant-garde hip-hop beats to jazz rap to noise to more ambient live instrumentation jazz uh absolutely crazy i'm guessing fat possum gave them a little bit more of a budget since this is their this is their first album on fat possum everything else was on backwoods mm-hmm. um and it kind of shows like this thing sounds like you're listening to it in 4d instead of like a normal hip-hop album where it's like you know drums and everything are on the same plane this it's like there's bells and things ringing around your head constantly there's dial tones there's voicemails just like all over the place um yeah this is one where it will definitely scare a lot of people off it's getting pretty good reviews but from what i'm seeing people that usually aren't in tune with their music or people that just kind of like listen to whatever's new and then move on aren't getting a whole lot from this um this is definitely one that requires a lot of listening um it completely breaks the mold of any hip-hop album i've probably ever heard uh yeah it, it it's it has that effect of injury reserves last album where it's like this is so outside of the realm of what hip-hop is like if you showed this to someone 40 years ago like whatever rapper in the 90s they'd be like you're crazy <laughs> that you want me to rap on this there's no way i can do that um yeah absolutely incredible uh i think this might take my album of the year slot over swans i'm not sure uh they're kind of neck and neck that's this is continuing to grow on me though um yeah, so I recommend it. Uh, it's a tough listen, but it's very rewarding. Uh, it's definitely one where you kind of have to just like sit back with it and just let it take you places because it takes you a lot of places. Um, it's 53 minutes long. There's a lot to it, but at the same time, it's like I want more, but I'm very satisfied with what we got here. Um, they're just on a different level than everybody else at this point. Uh, I don't know how to like oversell it enough. Like, they are just completely operating on their own wavelength. Um, and that's really where like these breakthrough creative records really come through because all the Am- arm and hammer records are really good, but this one's just different. Like the whole vibe of it, the soundscapes, everything is just really, really, really different. I thought they were going back to like a straight shooter paraffin where it's like heavy beats, uh, insane production, aggressive flows. But this one gave you kind of everything. You still got that psychedelia and just the eeriness of these two. Uh, but it's just kind of like turned up to 10 to the point where like a lot of this could just be almost avant-garde if you don't read into the lyrics. So yeah, absolutely fantastic. Um, 
I combined my segments a little bit. I, I didn't do it as much as I thought I would have for this album, but at the same time, I don't really care that I didn't because, like, this speaks to you in actual music more than it does lyrics, um, which is, like, really surprising from most two. But, I mean, still absolutely amazing, uh, near perfect. I will have more to say about this at the end, end of the year, most likely. But, yeah, that is the big boy and probably the longest album review I will do in a while. Um that's it. That's it. Yippee. All right. Nice. Cool beans. Well, I don't know what's going to happen next week, but I think that'll do it for I our show. We won't be here to cover it. That's right. That's right. I won't be here. Uh, I actually do know what's going to happen next time. I already scheduled it out. I can't say that anymore. Yeah. I will be able to after November but I do like this idea so we'll see how successful it is of uh, scheduling out little marathons I've been uh, watching a film review podcast called Film Spotting and they do something similar um, right now they've been doing a, uh, a marathon of African cinema which mm. I definitely <laughs> need to uh, watch some uh, they they recently talked Kanji's Harvest I don't think they've talked about that one yet They're starting older So they oh, okay. At least where I'm like at Like 60s or 70s Yeah I think They just reviewed Black Girl Which I think mm-hmm. is 60s Senegal I think um, I think the only after Hollywood <laughs> I don't know I hope so I think, well, besides the Wakaliwood hit films, I think the only other African movie I've seen is Z, the Algerian movie about uh, political corruption in Greece. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, about... That one was the weird one that was like... I was kind of shocked because NATO was the bad guy. And it was a Which movie that came out in like the 60s or 70s. I'm like, wow, this is like ahead of its time. If you're that's from crazy. Africa, NATO's always been the enemy. Oh, that's true. And Which this... Is, yeah. Algeria... I don't remember when they got independence. I think it was like in the 50s or 60s, right? From the Somewhere French. Around there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which free is... One word Independence. To put it. It's not, yeah. It's neocolonialism <laughs> that started then, yes. which is, you know, yeah. Yes. They, they yeah. I'm pretty sure they were given uh, French citizenship, but they wanted it, if I remember correctly. Because <laughs> yeah, they would have loved to go to France. Awesome. <laughs> I think that's what Black Girl is about. Um, from what I know about that movie, is it's about a uh, woman in, I guess, Senegal that was a, like, um, like a nanny to like a, a wealthy white family in Senegal. And while they were there, the, the like wife or the mom would like give the servant like really nice clothes. And they're like, Hey, we're going to move back to France. Why don't you come with us? And then you can just raise the kids. And then when they go to France, then, you know, she's treated way worse and all the nice clothes and everything like she's required not to wear them because they don't want her to get any of the wrong ideas um yeah very like transformative ahead of its time well not really ahead of its time but you know 
unfortunately of its time, 60s African movie. So I do need to watch that one. But maybe Battle Af- of Algiers, except I don't think that's technically an African cinema movie. I'm not sure. And also I'm pretty sure that movie is like three hours long. Let me see. Oh, never mind. It's a it's two hours flat. It is. Um, man, it has four languages attached. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's English, French, <laughs> Arabic, it's, Italian. I think it's Italian. Oh, is it? Um. Um. Uh, countries: Italy and Algeria. I don't know. I just know that one because it was so good that revolutionary movements actually took pointers from it because, like, it was too accurate in its showing of it. Oh. Okay. Well, I do need to see that one. I think that one is on my list. Yeah. So I will see it eventually. Um, interesting. The, the poster says, a most extraordinary film from the New York Times. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that'll do it. So next week we'll be off, uh, on the week after week two of the marathon, check out the description for what we're watching and, uh, yeah, that'll do it. Bye. Bye.